the risk is if we don't control this boom, the rush to open up the new mines is very likely to lead to the very same stranded assets problem that we're having with fossil fuel. And now what we're seeing in this new mining boom around critical minerals is this new form of green colonialism where the urgency of decarbonizing the global north is pretty much reliant on keeping the global south dirty. We're seeing a lot of promotion of transnational initiatives for addressing and mitigating environmental and social harm, but unfortunately, no real sort of strength or teeth behind them. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hi, everyone. So glad to see so many of you here and see so much interest in today's panel, Unearthing Critical Minerals. Can Australia mine its way out of the climate crisis? As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. I am currently on the unceded land of the Gadigal people and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I further acknowledge the First Nations people and the country on which you are, um, from where you are joining us from all around the world. This is, I think, especially important to acknowledge because of the disproportionate impacts of uh, climate change and, and extractive industries have on Indigenous people all around the world. Today's panel is part of an ongoing conversation that needs to learn uh, learn from impacted communities and especially First Nations organisations. Today's panel is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute and Jubilee Australia. Sydney Environment Institute is a leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together key thinkers from the University of Sydney and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. Jubilee Australia Research Centre partners with communities in the Asia-Pacific region to promote economic justice uh, through research and advocacy. My name is Liam Sinclair and I'm a postdoc researching critical mineral global production networks in geography in the School of Geosciences here at Sydney and I'm a member of the Sydney Environment Institute. The purpose of this of tonight's panel is to launch Jubilee Australia's report, Green Light or Gaslight? The Transition Minerals Dilemma for Australia, which is a very timely contribution to the public debate on critical and battery mineral extraction in Australia. To help us launch the report, we have some excellent panellists. Uh, we have Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia, we have Kavita Naidu from Climate Action Network Australia, and Susan Park from the Sydney Environment Institute. Climate change, we all know, is the most severe existential threat of our generation. A clean energy transition requires a trebling of wind, solar and electricity networks by 2040 and a 25 times increase in the amount of electric vehicles uh, on our roads. This is according to the International Energy Agency, which also says a typical electric car requires six times the mineral inputs of a conventional car while an onshore wind plant requires nine times more mineral resources than a gas-fired power plant. This translates into a massive increase in so-called critical mineral mining. All right, but what are critical minerals? There's many different terms. Each country has its own slightly different list of what counts as a critical mineral and what doesn't. 
They're not chemically similar, it, but it's a political construction. It's a grouping of, of elements of minerals, of metals, based on the importance of them to uh, modern technology in our economy and the vulnerability of the supply chains of those of the elements, the minerals. For example, heavy rare earth elements are needed to make the permanent magnets in electric motors in vehicles and in wind turbines, while nickel, lithium and cobalt are all metals required for lithium-ion batteries. Jubilee's report singles out six transition minerals, uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, rare earths and copper, as the most significant of those critical minerals for the energy transition uh, and extraction in Australia. So the International Energy Agency, again, they're forecasting up to a 19-fold increase in nickel mining, a 7-fold increase in rare earth elements, and a 42 times increase in lithium extraction. And while some of the work that Jubilee has been doing is challenging those kinds of projections, it is clear that there will be a dramatic expansion of mining of some metals in some areas that have complex impacts on communities and the environment. And there is a very messy and often confusing uh, public discourse. It's, it's, it's very hard for, um, for all of us, I think, to separate out the hype and the hyperbole from reality. Tonight, I hope that we get one step closer to a measured conversation between genuine advocates on these issues. So, allow me to introduce our three panellists. We have Luke Fletcher, a researcher and advocacy leader. He has been the executive director of the Jubilee Australia Research Centre, which conducts research on advocacy across a broad range of issues, including mining, forest protection, fossil fuels, aid and development policy, and corporate accountability. He has been the author and co-author of many of Jubilee Australia's reports, including The Green Light or Gaslight. Kavita Naidu is a feminist, climate activist and human rights lawyer from Fiji, Australia, specialising in climate justice for grassroots women in all their diversity in Asia and the Pacific. Kavita is currently the Senior Strategist Pacific for the Climate Action Network Australia. With over 16 years of diverse experience working in the Pacific, Asia and the UK, Kavita has worked at the Asia-Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development and the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat. Susan Park is Professor of Global Governance in, Global Governance in Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and a research lead on the Transitioning Systems at the Sydney Environment Institute. She focuses on how institutional, international organisations and global governance can become greener and more accountable, particularly in the transition to renewable energy. So I'll hand over to our first panellist, Luke. Uh, mining in Australia, this is a, a, a new area for Jubilee, which is tr traditionally focused on that justice in aid, international debt relief and corporate accountability. Can you maybe start by telling us a bit about what drew you and your team to Critical Minerals and run us through the most important findings of the report? Um, you're absolutely right, Leanne, that um, Jubilee has its roots in economic justice, aid, corporate 
accountability, those sorts of things, going back into the 1990s and, and the 2000s. About 10 years ago, we so there was some changes within the organisation. We started making a move into working more with communities in the Pacific, fighting, for example, big mining projects. A lot of work in, in PNG and, and, and other places like Fiji has followed. Um, and then the, I guess the other thing is that for some time we've worked on the question of public finance. So incl- that includes um, public finance of fossil fuels such as coal and gas. And that evolved out of our role as the sort of main watchdog of Australia's export credit agency, uh, which used to be called EFIC and is now called EFA. And this kind of interest in, 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 in um, and EFA is kind of like a Commonwealth-owned bank that, that, that supports exporters and, and Australian companies operating overseas. So this sort of drew us back into the mainstream Australian kind of climate scene because um, a lot of uh, public, pro- public finance was being used to, put, to, to promote fossil fuels. So the transition minerals issue was appealing to us because it, it sort of cut across almost all the issues that are now important to us and that we now work on. So that includes climate change, it includes nature and divided biodiversity, it includes human rights, including their rights of Indigenous peoples, um, it includes corporate accountability, and finally, last but not least, it, it, there's a good whack of political economy in there. And because we are at heart um, massive policy nerds and critical mineral supply change is a very, very uh, complex issue in terms of political economy, I guess that... All of those things thought, well, this is a place where we really have to be. You know, it all kind of, we felt like it was, a, it was an issue that brought together all of the things that we cared about. So um, I, hope that, um, I hope that answers that question. As to the report itself, um, look, the first thing I want to say is it's really drawing on a lot of information that's already out there in the public sphere, both in Australia, um, by the Australian government, by other actors, by research done by UT, about UTS, um, ISF and other places, and by our, our partners and colleagues at uh, think tanks and NGOs overseas, um, we, we sort of pulled it all together and tried to put it a report that really just focused on um, applied a critical lens to so pardon the pun to the issue of Australia's critical mineral wealth and and what what we're going to do about it that 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 drew on a lot of the work that's been done internationally on on the prob- problematic aspects of these these things, but also which um, uh, had a very much an Australian focus. So as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, we chose six case studies, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, rare earth and copper. We could have included bauxite, we could have included graphite, we probably should have, um, but we only had so much time and, and, and headspace. Uh, so there was, those are a couple more that, that, are, that Australia has wealth in. Um, and I guess the first big finding, it's probably going to be no surprise to many people on this call, is that Australia has lots of this stuff all over the continent. Uh, and um, there's lots of projects in development. Lots of mining companies um, are applying for licenses in the process of getting approvals, and there are already quite a few operating mines. We're the biggest lithium producer in the world already. I think we're number three in cobalt. So there's a lot of critical minerals uh, or transition minerals, as we call it, exploration happening and, and, and activity happening now. Uh, like another really important finding, and you've already touched on it, is, um, and this we pretty much knew going in because we'd already sort of been reading the reports, was that this this demand, this incredible demand pro- projections for transition minerals, um, that they are extremely problematic. 
and that they're questionable. They're based on this business as usual scenario. You talked, Leanne, about some of the, uh, I think you were quoting the International Energy Agency projections, which are wild, especially for lithium and nickel but pre- and, and cobalt, but pretty pretty big for the others. Uh, and um, we just realised that they're based on a lot of assumptions that may not turn out to be true and that, that we may not want to be true. That is to say we might want to push the needle in other directions as we develop policies. If we don't, the, the risk is if we don't control this boom, the rush to open up the new mines is very likely to lead to the very same stranded assets problem that we're having with fossil fuels. So that is to say, opening up new projects that are not going to be um, um, economically viable, they're going to shut down, and also that there's going to be huge human and environmental consequences from that. So the second finding um, is really just how unprepared Australia is for this new mining boom. Whether you're looking at the um, the the reforms of the to the EPBC Act, which is currently underway, the Albanese government is planning to revamp the um, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act (EPBC Act). Whether you look at state mining laws, whether you look at cultural heritage legislation, whether you look at sovereignty and the rights of First Nations people, whether you look at the issue of mining waste and cleanup. And whether you just generally look at the at the overall corporate accountability regime, that is to say the mechanisms that we use all of our companies to, to make sure that they're not kind of um, harming human rights, um, across that whole spectrum, we are not ready for this boom. We are, we are less than ready. Um, and so there's just so many different policy um, levers that need to be pulled and new policy developments need to happen for us to... to begin to even think about heading, heading off with this new um, new kind of um, orgy of, of, of transition mineral plunder. So I guess that's the second. And then I, I know I'm out of time, so I'm just going to move on to the third um, important reflection, and that is around the geopolitics. So we know that Australia is coming under pressure from the US and from other allies to become a reliable contributor to the new critical mineral supply chains, ones that will hopefully, in their view, avoid China. Um, but this means that, that one of the, I guess, the findings of our reports is that this is an opportunity for Australia. We have an opportunity to use our wealth in, in transition minerals as leverage to actually start a conversation, one that's not happening now, in a lot of global and international spaces about what sustainable extraction really looks like and about what um, a more realistic sort of demand projections would look like and the policies to achieve them. Thanks, Luke. That's that's fabulous, and congratulations on on the report and getting this out as as this contribution. It, it's it's excellent to read. Um, I'll go next to Kavita. Uh, Kavita, you have long experience uh, advocating for climate justice from a feminist and global south perspective. You have also recently been engaging in in some of these debates about critical minerals extraction. That's quite a tension to to navigate. How will those experiences and your approach, your perspective, um, built, built on feminist approaches to global South justice, how will that inform uh, your work with CANA, uh, the Climate Action Network Australia, in Australia and in the Pacific? Well, I hope by speaking in platforms like this is a good start um, of really socialising um, the, the challenges of this new boom. Um, 
So the feminist climate justice theory really interrogates the neo-colonial energy model that we are currently very heavily dependent on. And that's whether in Australia or the Pacific or the rest of the world. The reality is that frontline communities have been deliberately made vulnerable from systems of oppression like colonialism, imperialism, capitalism and patriarchy. Um, and, but, but not just the communities in the global south, but also indigenous communities in the global north. So for instance, the indigenous communities in Australia. Like these communities are experiencing energy poverty. So if you think about this surge of, you know, becoming a renewable superpower, what this narrative really misses is how do you actually address things like energy poverty at the same time? And if you look at energy, energy is largely controlled by mega corporations in a capitalist model that is driven entirely by profit. We all know that the price of this growth and development has been paid by creating sacrificial zones in the global south and on indigenous lands here. And now what we're seeing in this new mining boom around critical minerals is this new form of green colonialism where the urgency of decarbonizing the global north is pretty much reliant on keeping the global south dirty. And, you, you know, it's very obvious. I was recently in the EU really challenging um, their legislation around critical um, Rare Earth Minerals Act is is they are all in the U EU, their, their supply of critical rare earth minerals is going to come from the global south. So countries like Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Congo, these are the countries that are going to have to supply these minerals. And the way this is going to be done is through our very unjust international trade agreements that continues to lock these countries into supplying the global north demand but really having none for their own transition. So what you need to really question is who is benefiting from this model and who controls it. And, you know, these trade agreements locks this continued extraction um, of minerals under this capitalist model. And all that does is continue exploitation, human rights violation, dispossession, land grabbing, environment degradation, poor working conditions, child labor, pollution, conflicts, and so much more. And we've already seen this happening with other forms of mining. And there's so many challenges. And, and as Luke has rightfully mentioned, in terms of like corporate accountability of what happens to these injustices. So if we're not addressing these injustices and we're replicating the same model, um, we're simply just extending injustices across the global south to these people, their territories, their lands, and in the case of the Pacific, even their ocean through deep sea mining. So we've got numerous examples of these injustices happening across the global south. We know the, um, the impacts on indigenous communities and Ecuadorian Amazon from sourcing balsa woods for wood, wind turbines. Um, we know Australia's Lina's offshore processing plant in Malaysia, the largest rare earth um, processing plant in the world. And, you know, the Malaysians 
over years, you know, um, really resisted um, the continuing operation. And and finally, you know, Malaysia has decided that it's just going to shut down um, that processing plant. And so this is the other thing that the global north is 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 going to really have to tackle, which is outsourcing a lot of the processing and manufacturing not on their shores so really not having radioactive waste dumped here but in the global south um and the most glaring fact which really baffles me when i go into these spaces is that there is just not enough critical minerals in the world to replace our cars or build batteries so instead of looking at transforming our systems whether it's transport agriculture or investing in recycling, what you see is really selling is buying Tesla SUVs or campaigning for Australia as a renewable or CRM superpower. So the problem I see is that we, while we talk about ending fossil fuels, we are not really talking about our consumption, our production, our waste and pollution, and the demand that's driven by the global north and is born by the global south. And Australia continues to rank as the highest per capita emitter in the world. So we're not talking about energy democracy or equitable sharing of energy to those who need it most. The narrative right now just looks at sustaining our current lifestyles and economic growth, as long as the source is clean, but really not looking at how that source um, is going to be regulated and governed, including the supply chains. So the truth is, transition is inevitable, but justice isn't. Fabulous. Thanks, Kavita. That what what I really like about your perspective and what what you've just what you've just outlined there is, amongst all of the technology based predictions and assessments of the International Energy Agency and other organisations, uh, we they don't ask the question of who is profiting, who is paying the costs and who is receiving the who is who is benefiting from the energy transition so i really like that you start to ask those questions and identify which groups are benefiting which groups are paying the costs and that's a fantastic segue to um to our next panelist our final panelist uh, for the evening uh professor susan park uh susan we've been talking a lot about the impacts in australia and internationally your work focuses on global environmental governance one of your recent papers is called the, the Dark Side of Renewable Energy. Uh, are there any promising global governance mechanisms that could help to mediate some of these cross-border issues of, of justice, impact and access? Um, so the research that we've been doing at the Sydney Environment Institute and with our international collaborators has really been to try and examine the emergence of transnational governance initiatives to try and mitigate the exact harms that Kavita um, has been talking about in terms of critical mineral extraction for renewable energy. And what we've tried to do is to look at um, precisely who is governing, what is being governed, what is not being governed, what actors are being held to account and how. And this is really grounded in the in the fact that we we know, as uh, as as the Jubilee report has uh, has identified, that mining is meant to be largely governed domestically um, through leasing mining concessions and enforcing human rights and environmental laws. 
Um, but we can also recognise that um, multinational mining corporations, global supply chains and global demand um, all highlight the importance of investigating the nature of accountability at the transnational level. Um, and so the reliance on domestic governance really overlooks the global cumulative impacts of transnational mining activity because, after all, this is a global transition to renewable energy and this is having, as, as Kavita pointed out, um, quite significant environmental and social impacts, mainly in the global south. Um, so what we tried to do in our investigation is to look at the types of measures that are being developed to mitigate against what we've called the free displacement effects um, that arise from this extractivism. So um, first is dispossession, the second one, environmental degradation, and the third one, the economic dependence on extractive industries, a sort of new resource curse, but this time around critical minerals. And the reason why we wanted to look transnationally is because, as, as you've already identified, the International Energy Agency can document what is happening and what the projections are, but it was really designed as a specific international organisation around um, oil and gas, and it's woefully underpredicted the transition to renewables. It's playing catch-up here. Um, the second point is that we um, states created IRENA in 2009. That was a German initiative. But IRENA isn't there to actually monitor and regulate the transition to renewables. It's precisely there to encourage the transition to renewables. So there's no overarching world body that is actually monitoring the harms and impacts and the transition. So this is why a lot of global environmental governance is really about what's emerged in this sort of public-private hybrid types of initiatives that are emerging. And you can see this across all sectors. So it's nothing new. For, uh, for mining or for critical minerals. But in, in this space, you're seeing, of course, um, states, international organisations, you've got mining companies, you've got technology manufacturers, you've got consumers, you've got communities in these sacrifice zones, and civil society actors like Jubilee and Kana here that all have different aims or different intents as to what they would like governed and how they would like it governed. So this means we've got really different interests at play here in terms of determining what sort of governance initiatives will look like. And of course, we know that states generally drive the um, global energy agenda and that this is really being driven by concerns over energy security and energy access, as well as addressing climate change. Uh, while you've got the private sector that's primarily concerned about the profitable supply of renewable energy to satisfy um, shareholder expectations as well as consumer preferences. And of course, you've got NGOs and civil society actors that are seeking to hold both states and companies to account, um, not just for the harms from renewables extractivism, but also to just focus on the rapid uptake of renewables given the climate emergency. So what we did in our work is to try and identify what sort of new transnational initiatives for critical minerals have emerged over time and what, you know, what they were governing and what they weren't. So whether or not what we call governance gaps were emerging types of initiatives that were being promoted and whether or not this was leading to accountability traps. And the accountability traps idea is really looking at whether or not the initiatives were there to tick their own boxes as to whether or not they were being held to account for the things that they've agreed to do. So whether or not there was any monitoring or compliance or verification or types of sanctions for not doing what they say that they were doing. And we, we really started 
by looking at the, the International Institute for Sustainable Development's 2018 report, which was one of the first shifts towards reporting on supply chain governance for energy transition uh, minerals and metals. So again, the importance of civil society actors for pushing the needle on what we need to pay attention to in this transition. And that sort of helped provide a baseline of, um, you know, identifying what sort of initiatives were out there. And there, there is a, a, a sort of steep increase in the types of initiatives that have emerged over the past 20 years and really um, focusing on a range of issues. So how to regulate mining. But what we identified was that um, companies themselves were identifying a whole bunch of different standards in their sustainability reports as to what they thought that they should be benchmarking against. And not all of those were specific to mining. And so our original database um, collected about 68 initiatives, including um, you know, the UN business principles. We stripped out the, the mega ones or the meta ones, and we came down with 43 specific initiatives. And pretty much what we identified is that these are all voluntary. They're all private sector related, even if they're driven by the EU or the OECD. They generally work towards certification standards that are entirely voluntary. They're entirely based on the willingness of the companies to actually provide the information as to what they're being held to account for. And there's no sanction. So the downside is we're seeing a lot of promotion of transnational initiatives for addressing and mitigating environmental and social harm, but unfortunately, no real sort of strength or teeth behind them. All right, thanks. Thank you, Susan. Um, not the uplifting, uh, not the uplifting outlook that uh, maybe some of us were hoping for, but um, but yeah. So we've each been discussing in in our own ways the negative impacts and the lack of uh, the lack of solid accountable governance regimes with, um, with with sanctions mechanisms we've been discussing lots of these negative impacts of critical minerals and the dark side of renewable energy and these are all we've, we've all come here with very uh, important evidence-based critiques but there are and I think we all know that there are lots of bad faith actors uh, out there, and I can think of a, a few politicians and a few uh, uh, fossil fuel spokespeople uh, who cynically use these kinds of arguments uh, about, for example, uh, if it's child labour in the DRC or if it's deep sea tailings placement of, of nickel refining in Indonesia. They use these impacts not as a way of calling for, for better governance mechanisms, but as a, an argument against electrification, as an argument against deploying renewable energy uh, in, in just ways. How do we have this public debate like we are tonight? How do we have this public debate without giving these kind of bad faith actors any, any credibility? Uh, let's, let's go back in the same order that we went last time. So Luke, I'll throw it to you first. We, we do need to be very careful not to do anything that plays into the it's all just too hard whatever we do message, you know, sort of a plague on both your houses kind of thing. We, we, we absolutely have to be very careful about that. I mean, to a certain extent, people are going to try and do that no matter what we do, so that we, can't, we can't control everything. But so a couple of reflections. The first is that 
I think history shows, including in Australia, that um, if the climate movement is united around its its sort of goals and its and its messaging, it is very powerful. So I think the first thing we need to do is make sure that whatever the range of perspectives there might be within the climate movement more generally, uh, we need to sort of get everyone on the same page and bring everyone together and, and find a way to move forward with a unified voice on this. That's going to take some time, but we're kind of starting to do that already um, uh, through using CANA, for example, and, and, and others. So I think that's really important and we need to keep doing that. Um, the second thing, just when it comes to sort of public campaigning on, on transition to minerals, um, and um, we're generally just beginning to think about this, so I don't want to preempt the conversations, um, the decisions we come to, but um, I think it's going to be important to come up with messages that, that, that have resonance, right? So, um, and I think one message could be this one of like, well, we don't want to solve the, the, the current crisis by repeating the mistakes of the last crisis. Right, so, and that's when I was talking about the stranded assets issue and all of the things that that Kavita sort of has, has outlined in her talk. So, um, but look, we have to do I think a lot more thinking and planning on, on in terms of coming up with with what what a sort of unifying message would be, and one that sort of cuts across. And and but I think Kavita's already touched on some of them about um, uh, we are we we have an opportunity this and and we have an opportunity here to do things differently this time. And if we buy into that, that would be helpful. Thanks. Like, yeah, Kavita. And Kavita, you also mentioned um, you also mentioned energy democracy. In, in, so maybe I could also ask you to reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, first, in in, in answer to you know how um, the fossils and other bad actors have um, so insidiously co-opted, um, you know, the narrative to suit their agenda this is very common i mean you can call it greenwashing every color of washing that corporations are coming up with so i'm not really surprised because this is what they've done with nature-based solutions net zero and it goes on and on and on right but the the fundamental problem when it comes to mining whether it's fossils or now critical rare earth minerals is that it has led to human rights violations and environment degradation. So focusing on that issue is what's really, really important. And the previous, previous or current and ongoing mining is still creating these problems. I think what the three of us is trying to really sort of lobby for here is to make sure that they don't continue under these new forms of mining because fundamentally that is the issue the issue is not us being against the transition to renewables using these minerals but to do it in a way that is sustainable that protects human rights that actually benefits the communities whose lands are being affected to do it very differently because inevitably I think we all want the same thing which is stop our dependence on fossil fuels but make sure that as we're transitioning, we're not doing it using a model that's creating these injustices. Um, and so when I'm talking about energy democracy, right, again, going back to corporations, the problem is that corporations wield so much unregulated power 
that even governments aren't able to regulate in any shape or form because, you know, corporations' profit is larger than the GDP of a lot of these countries that we're talking about. So to hold corporations accountable under existing mechanisms is hugely challenging. So what it really comes down to is political power within governments, political gov power within governments to ensure that there are policies, um, the stuff that Susan was talking about, that really regulates and is transparent and accountable about how these corporations will choose to operate. And this is something that's significantly lacking in a lot of these global north jurisdictions, right? And what we've seen previously is where they exist, whether it's in the form of due diligence or ESG, it's just on paper. Because ultimately, if you've got Australian corporations operating in foreign jurisdictions, legally, it's very hard to hold them accountable there. So it's kind of like, what work are we doing within Australia to hold them accountable for violations in Papua New Guinea or Chile? So these are some of the conversations that we really should be having, and we're not, really. Um, aside from academic spaces, I think we really need to start having these conversations within the mainstream movement. And on energy democracy, look, one of the solutions that we in the feminist climate justice movement, and really the global climate justice movements outside of Australia, <laughs> mainstream Australian climate civil society, really advocates for is energy democracy, which is energy that is not controlled by mega corporations for profit, but energy solutions that are locally owned, community led, you know, where, there, where the excess is equitable, where there's women that are involved in co-ownership or management. And it's, it's not on an industrial scale, but small, small grid scale. And, you know, this is, a, this is an ongoing conversation because a large part of how energy is actually being translated in a lot of global South economies is how can they sell that energy um, and make money out of it. And that's creating problems around the Mekong, you know, creating hydro dams, just mega projects. So really about descaling this obsession about mega electrical outfits. And again, based on, you know, market economics, but really to bring it right back to his decentralized way of how energy is accessible to communities that need it most. And it's like locally led. Fantastic. Susan, do you have anything you would like to add on this question? Yeah, look, it's such an important one, Leanne. Like, I really, really enjoy the responses from, from Luke and Kavita. I think, I think the first point is really to reinforce that the transition to renewables is so important because the CO2 emissions from fossil fuel extractivism is order of magnitudes higher than renewables extractivism. Like it's just absolutely like chalk and cheese. You just cannot compare them. We need to transition. We need to transition now. We need to do everything we can to transition now. And for that, we need renewable energy. So the, the life cycle analysis of renewable energy is just so much cleaner. And because we're in a climate emergency, we just, we just have to shift. 
So the bad faith actors, you know, argument is, is absolutely valid in trying to obscure that fact because mining is a dirty business. <laughs> just, so, you know, looking at the difference between fossil fuels and renewables, there's no, there's no debate. But mining is a dirty business, no matter what you're mining. And a lot of um, the transition minerals are, of course, ones that we have traditionally mined, like copper. So we, we know what the problems are. We're very familiar with the impacts that mining has on communities, on ecosystems and on countries in the global south. We know that as an extractivist country ourselves, Australia, that we have not actually benefited that much from the, the, the use of extracting fossil fuels. Sure, we're a rich country, but in actual fact, as Kavita was saying, and, and Luca's uh, Jubilee have pointed out, you know, a lot of these mining companies aren't taxed that much. So, you know, the profits are actually flowing offshore. So, so the issue here is how do you actually take advantage of mining for renewables in a way that's going to have the least impact? So that would, that would be my response. Great. Thanks, Susan. Yes, we don't want... The, we don't want the negative impacts of mining critical minerals to destabilise a, a just transition or potential uh, energy democracy uh, in the future. Uh, one question that we did have come through uh, before tonight, before we started tonight, was can the panellists reflect on the implications for uh, First Nations people? And I think I'll just take this one really quickly and say that, uh, yeah, unfortunately, and that this is our failure, is that none of the panellists uh, tonight are uh, Indigenous and we don't want to speak for First Nations people. So instead, I would like to uh, direct everyone uh, to listen, to learn from and support First Nations organisations that are working at the intersection of just climate uh, transition of sovereignty and rights to things like free prior informed consent, uh, which is something that many organisations have, have advocated for for a very long time. Uh, organisations like First Nations uh, Clean Energy Network and Original Power and the Nas National Native Title Council, uh, organisations like that. I think I would direct people, rather than us trying and field that question specifically, there was a couple of questions that came through about recycling. So maybe I'll ask this of... Luke very quickly, um, what strategies are recommended to boost recycling of critical minerals? And and one of the questions, thank you to whoever, whoever asked this question, one of the questions was asking, can we link the management of waste to the manufacturers, right? Is there any ways that we can uh, close that circle in a direct way that makes manufacturers responsible for their batteries at the end of life, for example? So I'll give that to Luke first, and then if, if, if Susan and Kavita want to jump in as well, feel free. Um, absolutely, we can. Absolutely. It's, as Kavita said, it's just a question of political will. So I think when it comes to... I'll start with, with batteries for, for EVs, electric vehicles, because um, that covers a lot of the critical minerals we're talking about, and just use that as an example. But So, for example, how would you have better recycling of... Um, with the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, etc. You know, in in EVs. Well, first of all, you can re you can require the manufacturers to have policies on on battery recycling. You can encourage recycling for car owners, for dealerships, for repair shops. You could, 
there's so much that you could do. You could attack all kind of aspects of the 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 sort of the, the motor vehicle um, industry. Um, if you, it's just simply a matter of developing and passing the legislation. It's not complicated. It's just it's going to be politically unpopular, probably, to do it, or at least it could be politically unpopular. So, um, but it's not. It's not. Of course, there's challenges in 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 designing any complex piece of legislation, but it's absolutely doable. Um, there, I just want to say there are other things that you could do beyond just recycling, though, to reduce demand. For example, you could require the extension of battery life cycles you know to have to, for the battery life cycles to be as long as possible so that you're using less because they're lasting for longer right you could require smaller cap batteries you could require smaller cars someone mentioned um um <laughs> big cars earlier before um i think it's kavita uh uh you could do you could even do r d into the development of batteries that use more abundant minerals a lot of the minerals we're talking about the reason why they're so harmful to the environment one of the reasons is that they're so scarce that you've got to dig up so much earth to get them out and you've got to use complex chemical techniques to get them out that it's just much more environmentally destructive. So, yes, there's so many things that we could be doing as a mining power to do this, but we just have to want to do it. Um, I just want to say one more thing. We we're talking about sort of environmental management, just to pick up on Susan's point about um, how we do this, manage this more sustainably. Um we we talked about we work a lot on copper mining in in in, in the Pacific and uh, w- w- this is one thing that we don't re- I think quite realise is that some minerals it's very hard to to mine them sustainably but just take copper for example so much of the damage that's done by copper mining could be eradicated if you just said we're going to do no more copper mines that don't require the company to backfill the tailings so just to say to put the da- the tailings which is the un that they're part of the the stuff you dug out that you that don't have the minerals that you don't use back to where you found it in the hole that you dug it out from instead of dumping them in rivers or oceans or other places so much of your environmental problems just disappear why don't companies do this because it's more expensive and those those prices go along supply chain and end up getting to us right so this comes back to Kavita's point about global capitalism but it also comes to, to the point about um, having politicians not just in Australia, but everywhere, having the political courage to take on the companies to say, we're going to force you to do this and we're going to wear the political heat that comes to us from the consumers who say, how come my, my plumbing, my copper plumbing or whatever costs more? I mean, copper's used in everything, so the prices will go up all over the place, but not by as much as you would think. That's a great point, especially when there is low-hanging fruit that, that, that could easily improve some, if not all, of the impacts. Um, Susan or Kavita, did you want to jump in anything and say anything extra about recycling or demand reduction in general? I think I only have a short one. I think another fact um, that should be known is while critical raw minerals can be recycled, rare earth minerals cannot. And so, again... We have to look at demand as a more viable option rather than, well, how do we supply that demand using our finite resources? Um, So, yes, recycling is a really, really good way of of trying to control and manage this. But the real problem is demand. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I think also that um, 
the a lot of I think some excuses are made that we, because there aren't so many electric vehicles and, and lithium-ion batteries in circulation, we you know it's not viable to start recycling now. But perhaps if we started the structures to encourage recycling from now, then that can um, uh, be in place for when there is more in the in the system. Uh, okay, I've got a question from uh, Sue Reed in the comments in the. Uh, in, in the um, Q&A box that says, following Kavita's advocacy for energy democracy, could a similar transition be sought in terms of mining, uh, that is, extraction democracy? I don't really know about extraction democracy, but one of the things that we lobby for from the global south is to redistribute power to the global south. Right now, the way international trade agreements are designed, power and wealth, is transferred entirely to the global north. They control all of it. Um, but the global south also has quite a legitimate base of power in the sense that the raw materials are being provided, I mean, are available um, in the global south. So it's kind of like, how do you leverage these agreements in a more equitable way so that these Global North countries do not keep a chokehold on Global South countries. And those of you who actually follow things around economic justice, these international trade agreements have something known as ISDS. So they're basically a resolution mechanism, but what it does is it allows the Global North countries and largely corporations to sue governments in the Global South if the governments in the Global South breach a clause in that agreement. And that breach can be things like the Peruvian government passing stronger laws on environmental policies or trying to protect a forest. And the corporation is like, this is going to affect our profits. And so the Peruvian uh, <laughs> government goes to court and, and is fined billions of dollars. And this is what's happening. And this is why I keep going on about our current capitalist model, which has legitimate legal agreements that keep plundering and exploiting and putting position, putting the global south in extremely diff difficult situations where they don't have economic sovereignty. Um, and this is, this is the problem. The global south countries just do not have economic sovereignty, so they do not have the power to manage the resources that is present on their own lands and territories much less get the benefits out of it as they should. Great. Um, I have a question here uh, in, that's in the Q&A box as well from Dave Burrows, uh, which also, and I'm going to combine that with a, a previous question that was submitted as well, uh, that's basically about a, a similar lines to, to what, Kavita, what you were just speaking to, but I might throw it to one of the other panellists. Um, similar lines in terms of is there scope for a public sector mining company that can mine in the public interest and manage the renewable energy transition in the public interest without uh, so much profits being extracted? I know this is a very extremely difficult thing to, uh, to imagine, um, but Dave Burrows, you do, does mention uh, the Australian higher education institutions, and we know many, many universities around Australia are, are developing right now the kinds of technologies and piloting the kinds of manufacture of uh, precursor materials for, for 
battery cathodes and, and so on. So we know that, that they are playing a significant role already. Do any of you see uh, some kind of scope for this? And we know that yeah, other countries, this is the case. But um, So maybe I'll throw it to Luke or Susan first, if, if either of you would like to jump in on this idea of a greater public direct role. <laughs> so I'll say two things, and I'll be really quick. First of all, we've seen other countries um, develop public corporations to exploit the resources. It usually goes bad because they become co-opted and they're almost as bad as the private sector, sometimes worse. So I don't think that's... I would like to see more First Nations. I mean, I think First Nations communities, communities at least that we talked about, would like to see First Nations-owned cooperatives mine, mine their own land. That's something that could be very interesting. And it's sort of along the lines of what you're talking about. But, um, you know, whilst we're stuck with capitalism, um, I think that's probably unlikely to happen. But Susan, you might have some thoughts. As a political economist. I was just going to riff on off Kavita here with uh, the fact that there are international trade and investment rules that preclude nationalisation. So this is um, not something that would ever be entertained here in this country, particularly uh, given that we have been sort of decades of economic rationalism and sort of neoliberal economic approaches to, to how we govern this country. So this is not something that could be taken up by universities. Universities themselves are pretty poor at commercialization. Uh, they don't have, uh, they don't, there is a big mismatch in this country between the innovation that is happening in universities and being able to commercialize it, um, you know, much as I would wish it otherwise. But I would leave it there. All right. Thank, thanks, Susan. Thanks all for that question. So I would like to say, Thank you very much to our wonderful panelists. I think this has been an, an excellent conversation and I hope that we all continue it uh, amongst ourselves and with a much broader group of, of civil society and First Nations organisations and um, the policy makers and everyone else who needs to be part of this conversation. I hope that we continue this and I hope that we continue to bring informed evidence-based arguments to the table uh, because, yes, to continue countering some of the hype and the hyperbole that we see around critical minerals and the energy transition. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. It's a fantastic conversation, and I can't wait to see you all again.